Good morning. I'm thankful to be here with you today. And I'm thankful you're here today. It's such a beautiful day. You know, many, 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 many years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. There was darkness on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. And then God separated the darkness from the light. And He said, let there be light, and there was light. It was the first day. And then God goes on through the next few days and He creates dry land, and He creates the stars and the moon and the sun, and He creates all the animals and all the plants. And then on the sixth day, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So He created the male and female, man and woman. The man He created first and He formed him out of the dust of the ground and He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And He told the man, He said, name all the animals and find a companion. And all the animals came before Adam. And He looked at him, but He couldn't find a companion in the animals. And God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper for him that's suitable to him. And so He caused the man to go to sleep and He took one of his ribs and He formed that into a woman. And then when Adam awoke, there was this woman, Eve. And God presented her to him in the very first wedding ceremony in history. And Adam said, this woman is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We'll be one. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall be one. And God put them in a garden and told them to dress and keep the garden. There was lot, there were many, many trees, lots of different fruit and things to eat in this garden. But He said, there's one tree I don't want you to touch. But they did touch it. Eve ate the fruit of the tree. When the serpent beguiled her, he deceived her and she ate it. And that was the introduction of sin. And you know, you get to the next chapter of Genesis and they've got two kids and one of the boys murders the other one. And then you go on and read and there's all kinds of evil and wickedness that comes into the world. And this beautiful purity that Adam and Eve as husband and wife in the garden had in the very beginning gets corrupt. By the time you get to Deuteronomy which is the fifth book in the Old Testament. Many years later, you got a guy named Moses who's leading the children of Israel. And it's become a very corrupt people, a very corrupt society. And these people were marrying and they were the men would marry a woman and if he got tired of her, he'd just kick her out. And so Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24 makes a law and he says you can't kick out a woman unless you give her a writing of divorcement so she can go marry someone else. Because a woman couldn't support herself. She had no way to live if she didn't have a husband. He was concerned about protecting these women who were being just abandoned by their husbands. But you know how people are. 
You know how people are, and we can take anything that's designed for good and figure out a way to twist it so that it justifies what we do, right? We're all guilty of that at times. By the time Jesus comes along, marriage is in a similar state to where it's at in the United States of America today. Marriage is not sacred. Marriage is not holy. Marriage is something that people enter into and then leave and enter into and leave and enter into and leave with no thought. And their argument is always this, well, Moses said we could divorce her if we gave her a writing of divorcement. And so instead of it being a protection now, it was their excuse. Well, I can do it if I give her a writing of divorcement. And it was corrupt. And into that world and into that circumstance, Jesus one day gathers many people, many of His followers, and He's on a mountain and He begins to preach. And He talks to them. The sermon He preaches we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, in that, He talks just for a little bit about marriage and about divorce and about remarriage, and about adultery, and about fornication. He talks about the relationship between a man and a woman. And I want to look at what He said to them. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say unto you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except fornication causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, one time Jesus preached and at the end of His sermon the Bible says that those who were following Him, most of them, went away because they said, this is a very hard saying. They didn't like it. They didn't like what Jesus said. I want you to know that this is not the only passage in the New Testament that talks about divorce, but this is the one that's in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the series that we're in right now about the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to talk about what this passage teaches to you and I. And I want you to know... These are the words of Jesus. If you get an old paper Bible, they're in red. These are the words that Jesus Christ Himself spoke about marriage and the holiness and the sacredness of marriage and how important that is. This passage, He tells us this. You've got a man and a woman. And He says, the man divorces the woman. He says, when he does that, for any cause other than fornication, and fornication is sexual sin, for any cause other than her cheating on him, he makes her to commit adultery. And then he says, the guy who marries her when she's been divorced this way also commits adultery. 
Now, there's another passage in Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32. There's another passage in Matthew that's probably more famous where Jesus talks about this. It's in chapter 19 and it says this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So what he says in this passage is this, you got the man and the woman, he divorces her, and he marries another woman. If he divorces her for any cause except fornication, sexual immorality, then he commits adultery when he marries another woman. And he says whoever marries the woman he put away commits adultery. In fact, there are four verses or four passages in the Gospels that Jesus spoke on this very topic. And we're not going to look at all of them, but suffice it to say that they're all some variety of this. Sometimes they talk about the woman divorcing her husband. Sometimes they talk about the husband divorcing the wife. What we're going to talk about is what this teaches to you and I today. And let me start with this question. Why does that even matter? I mean, really. The world we live in? This is no longer the age of the scarlet letter, is it? Remember the scarlet letter and Nathaniel Hawthorne story where the woman, her husband went to Europe and ten months later she had a baby so everyone knew she had cheated and she had to wear a scarlet A for adulterer. It's not that way anymore, is it? Not in America. I read an article the other day. This woman had written about travel. She said, forget marriage. My partner and I made a covenant to travel together. (laughs) That was their plan. And if either one of them ever decides they don't want to travel anymore, they're free to go find somebody else who does because they want to travel. That's their relationship. In America... Marriage has very little meaning. So why does this matter? Let me show you biblically why it matters. In Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, tells us that marriage is a picture of a special relationship. He says in this passage, Wives, obey your husbands as the church obeys Christ. Now, I know it's not popular in the world we live in to say a wife needs to obey her husband. But the Apostle Paul said she did. But he gave a reason. Not just because men are smarter or men are more capable or men are better. None of that. He says the reason is because they're a living picture of the relationship of Jesus Christ and His church. And the church... Do you think the church needs to obey Jesus? Can I get an amen, yes or no? Do we agree with that? We believe the church needs to obey Jesus. And marriage is a picture of the relationship of Jesus Christ and His people. That's what marriage does. He says later, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. Husbands, you need to love your wife the way Jesus loves the church. I said, well, (laughs) you know, I try. But you just ought to hear how she... I know, I know. I mean, not that I know. (laughs) That was a mistake. (laughs) You know why you love your wife, guys? Other than, Mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. The reason you love your wife is because God said Jesus loves the church. And your marriage is a picture of how Jesus 
loves the church, you see. So your marriage is a living analogy of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why it's important. That's why it matters. That's why Christians get all up in arms when people start messing with marriage. Because it matters. It's not just something people do. We're not animals. We're made in the image of God. And that relationship is holy and sacred. There's another reason this matters. That reason is told to us in Galatians chapter 5. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. And he goes on with quite a list, but adultery is right there. Look how he ends that verse. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why adultery matters. Do you want to inherit the kingdom of God? I suspect if you didn't care, you wouldn't be here today. Am I right? Okay. You don't want to be guilty of this. You don't want to live this way. Because people who do this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Scriptures say. Somebody says, well, I don't know. How exactly are you defining adultery? What does adultery mean? That's a good question, isn't it? Because you don't want to not do something. or you I mean, you don't want to do something not realizing you're doing it and it costs your soul, right? What is adultery? Well, actually, there's a lot that the Bible says about adultery. And the word adultery is different than most of the words you look up. If you go to study the history of most words, you can see how a word began as one thing and it changed to mean something else and changed and changed through time till it has the meaning that we use today. But adultery is not that way. Adultery just kind of shows up in history as a word. So let me show you from the, from the text in Scripture what we can learn about adultery. First of all, adultery, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, which is a Greek dictionary, and the Greek word for adultery means to have unlawful intercourse with another's wife. You have marital relations with somebody you're not married to. That is adultery. And let me show you that in Scripture. Remember Jesus, they brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus. It says that they said to Him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. That's what they're talking about. They caught her in bed with another woman. She was caught in the very act. But did you know that's not the only passage? Or another man, I'm sorry. I live in America today, don't I? (laughs) Okay. We're laughing about this, but it's really not a laughing matter. It's serious to God. This isn't the only passage in the Bible that talks about adultery or gives us something that is called adultery. It is not always in Scripture identified with sexual sin. Did you know that? Look at this passage. He says in James 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, if you're faithless toward God and you want to be a friend of the world and not faithful to God, you're an adulterer or an adulteress. Now, that doesn't have anything specifically to do with sex. It has to do with your faithfulness to your relationship with God. Look at this. God's children seeking a sign... Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Seeking a sign because you don't trust God is adulterous. 
idolatrous worship. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. He's talking about Israel here. And you know what Israel was doing? They cut down trees and they take rocks and they would decorate them with gold and silver and they'd make an idol out of them and they would worship a god other than the god they were in covenant with. You see? And God said, it's harlotry. And He said, it's adultery. He also says, divorcing your faithful spouse to marry someone else is adultery. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What do all these things have in common? What's the central thread? Because they don't all have to do with sex. They don't all have to do with marriage. They don't all have to do with our relationship to God specifically. What do they all have in common? What these all have in common is that they all include the idea of unfaithfulness to a covenant relationship. In fact, if you look back as far as we can in studying the word adultery... They early on called it breaking wedlock. That's what they called it. And then later on they called it a vow tree. Now a vow is what you say when you enter into a covenant relationship. You said vows when you got married, didn't you? Jesse's getting married in May and they're going to say vows. You put an A in front of it, it means the negative or the opposite of that. It means you're breaking your vows is what it means. That's the essence. Now, I know in the world we live in today, adultery is very closely associated with the sexual sin, and that is adultery. But it's not the only sense of adultery. The idea of adultery in Scripture is when you defile that covenant relationship that you have with that other person or with God. And when you defile that covenant relationship you have committed the sin that the Bible calls adultery. Now, back to Matthew chapter 5. What's going on here when he says, don't lust and don't divorce your wife and all that? What's the context of this? I want to look at what he says here. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except fornication causes her to commit adultery. That's kind of a strange phrase, isn't it? He causes her to commit adultery. And I got to looking at that and I thought, you know, I'm going to see how some other other translations translate that. So I went and I found several other translations. There's one that says makes her commit adultery. There's one that says makes her an adulteress. One that says makes her look as though she has committed adultery. And there's one that says makes her the victim of adultery. And all the rest are some variety of these particular things. Now, translating Greek, and I'm by no means a Greek scholar. I have had some Greek classes. I know enough to know this. That in the Greek, just like in the English, sometimes words have a lot of different meanings based on the context that they're used in. Okay, I might say your dress looks nice today. Well, that's one use of the word nice. I may step out of my car and step into a mud puddle and go, nice. Well, it's the same word, but it means very different things because the context is different. So when you translate a passage, you have to understand the context that the words are used in. 
So I want to look very briefly. I have come to a conclusion of my own when I was looking at those of what this means. Causes her to commit adultery. Do you think that's what Jesus is saying? When you divorce your wife who's been faithful to you, she's innocent, you divorce her, you cause her to commit adultery. She was faithful. She is innocent. And Him divorcing her causes her to be guilty. Has she defiled her covenant relationship? No. Has she done anything to destroy her marriage? No. Has she wronged him in any way? No. So how could she be guilty? I don't believe that's what this passage is teaching. I don't believe that's the likely translation. Makes her an adulteress. By divorcing her, he makes her an adulteress. That's pretty strong wording, isn't it? Could I make my wife an adulteress just by divorcing her? You see, once again, she is faithful. She is innocent. Can His action cause her to be guilty? No. Now, His action could provoke her to do something to make herself guilty. But His action can't can't cause her to be guilty. Scripture says that the man who sins will bear the responsibility for his own sin and no one else. You see, I'm not guilty for your sin and you're not guilty for mine. And in the closest relationship in my life, my wife, she's not guilty for what I do. And I'm not guilty for what she does. You see, I don't believe this rendering is even possible. Well, what about this one? Makes her look as though she has committed adultery. You divorce your faithful spouse, put her out of the house, give her a writing of divorcement, reject her. Do you make her look as though she's guilty of adultery? Well, I can kind of see that. You know, that is true to the Greek text here. The Greek text actually could mean that she looks as though she's guilty of adultery. Because if a woman's kicked out by her husband, why would he do that? Well, he would do that because she cheated on him, right? I mean, that's what Joseph thought about Mary, isn't it? He thought she was guilty, even though she really wasn't guilty. That happens in America today, doesn't it? Sometimes people are convicted of crimes they didn't commit. And they look as though they're guilty even when they're not guilty. We understand that could happen. So she is innocent but appears to be guilty. Is that what he's talking about? Well, I have a couple of problems with this because divorce was common and frivolous when he said this. So it didn't necessarily follow that because a guy divorced his wife, everyone thought she was an adulteress because they didn't necessarily think that because divorce was common and frivolous just like it is today. And also, it just doesn't seem to fit the context as well. Because that's not really what he's talking about in this context. So, in my judgment, this is possible, but not probable. I feel almost like the Mythbusters here stamping these with possible or probable or confirmed. Here's the one that I think is accurate to the context and to the Greek text. He makes her the victim of adultery. In the Greek text, as best I can understand, what this is talking about is this is something that man does to that woman. 
And what is he doing to her? He is defiling and betraying that covenant relationship that he has with her. He has broken wedlock. She didn't. He did. And Jesus never blames the person who has their wedlock broken. He always blames the person who does the breaking of the wedlock. You see, she was an innocent woman. And this is faithful to the context. Look at the context of the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. In the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. You're blessed if you're this kind of person. And then he says this, you as God's people are to be salt and light. You're to be salt, but if salt isn't any good, what do we do? We throw it out and we walk on it. You're to be light, but but you're lighting your candles and hiding them under a bushel. They don't help anyone. So you're salt and you're light, but you're useless salt and you're burned out light. What good is that? Then Jesus says this, I came to fulfill this law that you've profaned. I came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. To show you what it is to truly be faithful to God. And then he begins to talk about all these different commands. He said, you've heard, don't commit murder. But I tell you, you're already committing murder because you've got hatred in your heart. You're full of hatred. He says, you've heard... Don't have unlawful intercourse, but you're guilty of adultery because of your lust. You've heard that you ought to love your friends and hate your enemies, but that's what you do. You love your friends and that's good, but you hate your enemies. These people did good deeds. They gave, but they did it because they would get praise from other people for doing it not because they cared about the people they were helping. These people fasted so that they would appear holy. Oh, what a holy man he is fasting. He must have been fasting a long time. Look how hungry he looks. Look how sad he looks. These people built up treasure. They were responsible with their money. They were building up treasure on earth, but they didn't build up treasure in heaven. These people were responsible with the things in their life because they didn't trust God. These people he's talking were very harsh and judgmental. But they ignored their own faults. And Jesus has a solution to all this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says you need to ask and seek and knock. Because if you ask and seek and knock, you'll receive. He says, don't take the easy way. Don't take that broad way, but you take that narrow road. Not the easy road, but the difficult road. It's not going to be fun tomorrow, but in the end it's going to produce a great reward. And He said, you be careful, because there are deceivers out there. And they will deceive you. They'll lie to you in the name of God. And they will drag you away. You need to do all these things. Why? Why? You need to do all these things because 
Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, I've done many wonderful works in Your name. I preached in Your name. I cast out demons for You, Lord. But Jesus says, I will say to them, I never knew you. Because you didn't do my Father's will. You did all these things, but you didn't do the will of my Father which is in heaven. You see, these people outwardly would conform to the technicalities of the law, but their hearts were corrupt. They didn't love God. They didn't love each other. They didn't love their wives. These were people who would maybe show up at church. In fact, maybe show up at church every service. But they weren't serving God. They'd go out and preach and do great works, but it was all for corrupt motives, for bad reasons. Their hearts were away from God. And Jesus concludes this sermon by saying, so now that you've heard it, don't be a fool and ignore it, but be wise and obey it. So what about this passage here, Matthew chapter 5 and 32? You know what was going on is these people had trivialized covenant relationships. A marriage to them was not holy. A marriage to them was not precious in the eyes of God. A marriage to them was a way for them to fulfill their lust. And when they got full of that one, they let their lust run rampant until they found another one they wanted. And they went and got that one and just gave a writing of divorcement. Yesterday I went to Burleson, Texas, had a meeting with some guys about the work in Nigeria that I'm involved in. And on the way, I'm driving along 121 down here. Yancey, you may have seen this. There's a great big billboard that I'd never seen before. It said, MyBigFatTexasDivorce.com. <laughs> I thought, well, that's crazy. What on earth? And so I went to MyBigFatTexasDivorce.com. You know what that's all about? I'm going to tell you what, I can get you out of that sorry marriage you're in. We can get you out and we can get all the money and we can get your kids and we can get everything else for you. We'll get you out of those nosy in-laws and that sorry marriage you're in. We'll make you happy. That's what that's about. It's everywhere. You know, in the beginning, when people asked Jesus about divorce, He said, can we divorce for every cause? He says, No. And they say, oh yeah, well why did Moses say we could then? He said, because of the hardness of your heart. You're hard-hearted. He said, but from the beginning it wasn't so. In the beginning, God made man different than the animals. Animals mate. They just move from animal to animal to animal. But people, no. Why? Because you're in the image of God. And your relationship to God should be holy. And as as a result of that, your relationship with your spouse is to be holy. You see, these people thought they had found a technical loophole in the law of God. I can do whatever I want and I've got some technical loophole that I can use to get out of the consequences of what I've done. I met a man one time who was a Christian man. He attended church. He and his wife both did. And he committed adultery. He went out and had a one-night stand. Came home and told his wife. 
Why would you do that? You know why he did that? Because he'd read this passage and he thought he had found a legal loophole. It says, except for fornication. So he said, you know what? If I go commit fornication, then I can divorce her and go find somebody else. Because he hated his wife and he wanted out. Can you imagine? Do you think God's going to go, man, you got me there. (laughs) Really? You can't fool God. You can't, you can, you can do everything you need to do to fool me or the elders or your spouse or other people around. You can look just as good as you could possibly look outwardly, but you can't fool God. And that's what he's talking about here. You cannot be married to a woman and fill your heart with lust for other women. It's just sinful and God knows that you might as well be in the eyes of God guilty of adultery because that's what you're doing in your heart. You cannot just kick your wife out and technically follow the rules and not be guilty of violating that covenant relationship that you have with her. And God will hold you accountable for that. Because we're not animals. We're people made in the image of the Almighty God. And our marriages are not just some social contract, but they are a living analogy of the relationship that Jesus has with His people. And that's why it matters. So what's the takeaway today? Well, the takeaway is this. Number one, your marriage is not just about fulfilling you. And I want to tell you, if you go into a marriage looking to just be happy yourself and your goal is to fulfill you, your marriage will fail. You won't make it. If you're in there to get your happiness out of it, you missed the point. Your marriage is for you to have a covenant relationship that is a picture of the relationship of Jesus Christ and His church. If you're a wife, your job in that marriage is to treat your husband the way the church is supposed to treat Christ. If you're a husband, your job in that marriage is to treat your wife as tender and lovingly as Jesus Christ treats His church. Your marriage is not for your fulfillment. Your marriage is to be a picture of Jesus Christ and His church. Secondly, God expects you to keep your wedding vows. He does. When I do premarital counseling, we talk about the vows. When I do counseling with people who have already been married and are having marriage trouble, the first thing I ask them is, what did you vow? Better, worse, richer, poor, sickness and health... A lot of people vow that and mean better, health, and richer. They don't mean the rest of it. It's a vow. God says you're better off not to make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it because He will require it at your hand and He has no pleasure in fools. God expects you to honor and keep your marriage vows. Number three, trivializing marriage is a terrible sin. And it's the sin of our generation, one of many, but it is a huge sin of our generation. Don't trivialize your home. Don't trivialize your marriage and don't look for some technical loophole to allow you to disobey the intent of what God commanded for you in your home. 
Number four, adultery, sinful divorce, and remarriage are forgivable. I want you to understand this. There's only one unforgivable sin. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I've never heard anyone, there's a lot of ideas about divorce and remarriage, but I've never met anyone that believed sinful divorce and remarriage or adultery were blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You can be forgiven for this sin. In fact, Jesus met a woman at the well one time and talked to her. And He said, you know, you've had seven husbands. And the one you're living with now is not even your husband. You can be forgiven. But you have to repent. You can't be forgiven and just keep committing the same sin over and over and over. That's not repentance. Repentance is I change. I don't commit that sin more. I don't keep going back to the same well. I've changed what I'm doing. And finally, get your heart right and honor God with your home. That's the message I have for you today. And I believe that's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't look for technical loopholes. Don't try to technically meet the requirements. But love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbors yourself. And you have no closer neighbor in this world than the one that you said your wedding vows with. I encourage you to take your marriage as sacred and holy. And every one of us, you can do something this week to make your marriage a little better. And that's not by getting your spouse to do what they ought to do. What it is, is by you saying, you know what, I can do a little better in loving my wife the way Jesus loved the church. Or I can do a little better in honoring my husband the way the church honors Christ. I can do that. At this time, we always offer a song of invitation. We haven't been asking people to come to Jesus and become Christians this morning, although if you want to do that... That opportunity is always available. What I do want to ask you for is this. Whether you need to come to the front and ask us to pray for you and help you with this, or whether you can make a noble resolve where you sit or where you stand and sing, I ask you to make a commitment to be the person God has asked you to be in your home. Starting today. If there's any way we can assist you, make that need known while we stand and sing.